This episode is dedicated to Frank Simmons, Chris Lay, Chrysanthemum Desir, and James Generic for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. Deep Space Nine, everybody. This is the show where I, Angel Marti, a veteran Star Trek fan, introduce my friend and newer Star Trek fan, Old Southpaw Sam, uh, to Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the most communist Star Trek show. And we watch every episode, giving uh, a little bit of a play-by-play and color commentary breakdown as we analyze all of the different... uh, politics, uh, political and creative uh, messages, both overt and uh, subtle. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm good. I actually needed this episode. I think I told you how I was in the mood for Star Trek DS9 in particular because I was just in a bad mood, kind of in a funk. I needed something like DS9, though it's not to say DS9 doesn't get heavy or deep. No, but this one, this episode... It's move along home, everybody. The, I, again, I, I said it last week. This one is delightfully silly. Some people <laughs> put it in their list of episodes to skip. What? That's a uh, that's that's a, a fallacy. That's a, a heresy. <laughs> that's a. It's just wrong in every way because I think you can't you can't fully appreciate Deep Space Nine if you're only going to go for the serious stuff. So let's get into it. All right. Uh, opening scene we learn that jake cisco unfortunately has now been on this station so long that he's finally starting to catch the dr bashir horny virus it is a pandemic yeah it really is yeah they they were able to catch the aphasia virus they still have done nothing about the the horny pandemic just radiating from sick bay uh yeah, Cisco says that that uh, well, Jake has been saying that he's starting to notice girls more, and uh, uh, Captain Cisco has uh, has to take stock that Jay's, Jake's becoming a man, and that they have to have the talk. Uh, uh, Jake, however, reassures his father that he doesn't need to be told about women because he's been learning about it from Nog, who if you if for some, we haven't seen him in a little bit, so if you forgot. Nog is the young Ferengi who's uh, the son of one of the of Quark's brother, Rom. And now uh, Cisco is immediately worried about that. And one the, one of the things that that uh, I think is worth discussing here is is Cisco's immediate distrust of Nog's opinions and ideas on women. In this case, because he's a Ferengi. Do we want to call that racist? And the reason why I say, why I ask the question is because, like, uh, a common f- for people who are like more, I guess, uh, 
sophisticated in their science fiction tastes, like like people who read like a lot who like read a lot of sci-fi novels and you know have seen different treatments of alien cultures outside of the mainstream. One of the common criticisms of uh, of Star Trek is that alien races are kind of depicted as uh, cultural and political monoliths. Do do we think that that a prejudice against the Ferengi in this case is more of a can be considered like just a prejudice against a particular uh, cultural mindset and not like an entire alien race? I'm kind of reading it as like Nog is like the quote unquote bad friend, right? That is more of a trope in a lot of like coming of age, like TV shows or like Wonder Years shows or stuff like that. And then secondly, he knows Quark's family. And so it might be more of a prejudice against Quark and his family. And also he doesn't like the fact that Nog has been getting his son in trouble. So I think it might be more of a personal prejudice than against all of the Ferengi. That's how I'm reading it right now. But uh, uh, Cisco uh, tells Jake that he's uh, wearing his dress uniform because he's about to make a first contact with a new species from the Gamma Quadrant called the Wadi. And after he, uh, before he leaves, uh, he tells Jake that first contact is like a first date with a girl. Now, Sam, I don't know about you, but have you ever been on a date with a woman that carried the potential risk of starting an interstellar war? <laughs> Can't say I have, but I am noticing a pattern that the cold open, right? It's always some kind of like sexual innuendo going on, <laughs> right? It's, it's a very hot open often with DS9. Oh, yeah. Very sensual open. <laughs> so we cut to uh, <laughs> we cut to the uh, we cut to the the crew about to meet the Wadi delegation and Bashir is missing his dress uniform. I, I wrote down, come on, DS9 writers, he could just replicate a new one. Like, this seemed a very, like, contrived gag to just be missing his dress uniform. But it, again, again, it's kind of interesting how they go back and forth with Bashir. I mean, he's like the butt of the jokes, right? He's a butt of the jokes, but it's like, on the one hand, he could be, like, very, like, sort of nebishy, like, to use, like, a, a Yiddish term of, of, like, you know, literary tropes, but then like also very uh sometimes very like suave and charming i mean i get i guess i shouldn't like deny that a that a person can just be both and contain multitudes but for some reason <laughs> it always feels a little bit shocking to see bashir like go from being very capable and then, then like very charming and then like uh i don't have my clothes Angel, maybe you're reading into like some writer's room drama, right? Maybe <laughs> the writers themselves are like, we haven't agreed on what he's like. Inside Bashir, there is two wolves. One <laughs> is horny, one is nerdy. And there's a constant <laughs> battle between them to see which one survives. So finally, we see the Wadi and uh, they look straight up like some Baltic country's entrance into Eurovision. Like they have these flashy like like reflective suits and mullet haircuts i will say this that actor that played the main ambassador fallow i used to see a lot in like the 90s early 2000s and i feel like whenever he would come out on the show he would come out as a guest star playing somebody from europe <laughs> just like he he's like hello i am latvian number one yes I have to say that, like, I always have this, uh, 
this sort of cultural hypothesis that like the 80s didn't end until 1996. And this is proof that this show in 1993, this is very much like 80s aesthetic. I, 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 I always say that the 80s did not end until Hulk Hogan dropped a leg on Randy Savage and joined the NWO. That was when the 80s finally officially ended. I think you might be onto something. And we've talked about this, that, you know, you can really track the world's changes in politics through pro wrestling. So I think you're onto something because pro wrestling itself is reading from the world. Yes. So in, in traditional Chinese medicine, you can tell a person's health from taking pulse at different pressure levels. So uh-huh. like pro wrestling and Star Trek are like the two different pulse levels of American culture. Yeah. One is checking their tongue. The other is checking their wrist. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> so the uh, Starfleet officers show up ready to engage in the full ceremony of uh, first contact. But then... Uh, Fallow, the head ambassador, immediately interrupts them to basically ask, y'all got games on this station's phone? <laughs> like he says, where are the games? And and uh, Cisco is crestfallen because apparently all they're interested in is uh, the games. They would rather be on their damn phones playing games, these damn kids. We then cut to Quark's bar where the Wadi are already playing Dabo. And Quark, obviously a little annoyed, uh, goes, uh, he asks Cisco, do they have money? Which seems to be an implication that he deals with customers who don't. I think we've talked about this. A lot of the economics don't make sense. So they purposely leave it unexplained so we could kind of project our own answers to it. So my headcanon is he lets them play for free until they rack up a certain amount of debt. And then they have to pay that debt off with physical labor. That's how I envision it. All right. All right. As we keep, let's, let's, this will be like the the side mission of this show is that as we watch this show, we try to make up a coherent economic explanation about of how all the different kinds of transactions are possible on the show. And then we can like send it to Paramount NBC and then they can steal it from us and never credit us. Uh, never mind. That's a bad idea. Um, so finally Quark, uh, uh, Quark gets them to uh, actually wager something for a game of Dabo. And uh, the first thing that the Wadi uh, offer is a uh, box of these clawn pig sticks that Quark seems completely uninterested in. And then uh, a bottle of what they call alpha current nectar that he takes a drink of and finds revolting. And so he, Quark obviously doesn't seem to take these as uh, acceptable things to wager because of the subjectivity of value. That's why, uh, you know, money was created as universal. Uh, Sam, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like that's the necessity of money to create a universal standard of value, uh, even though like that value is still ultimately determined subjectively by, you know, the small class that hoards it. But like, Obviously, if nothing has no obvi- uh, nothing has a clear functional use and it's not some kind of universal token of value, it's not going to be an effective thing to wager in a gambling game, right? Yeah, it's interesting how in the future, because money is no longer like this debt obligation to get services rendered, most of the stuff in the developed intergalactic world is free. In the first galaxy. <laughs> yeah, the first galaxy. It's free. Then when you do need to use money for primitive activities like gambling, you have to find primitive forms of money again, which is basically, well, everything else is taken care of. Then what can we find value in? And then they just go back to shiny stuff. Right, exactly. So the finally Quark accepts uh, uh, one 
uh, a wager when it's a bag full of like, obviously they're supposed to look like gems and stones and stuff, but like, could like, let me ask you, Sam, especially as far as like determining the value of an object in something like this. So this species is from the gamma quadrant. So they're from like halfway across from the opposite side of the, of the side of, of the galactic core. Could these rocks just be any old rocks from the gamma quadrant and still acquire immense value in the alpha quadrant, like simply by virtue of being a rare, just by not already existing there? Like how, what would make these valuable to Quark besides just looking cool? So as far as like thinking about money, money, I think we're using it as big tent. I think Quark is not accepting this as money per se. That's the word he's using. But it's not a medium of exchange where there's like an agreed upon value where everybody sees it at the same value. I think he's taking it on as a speculative asset. So he himself doesn't know what it's worth, but he is confident in his ability to sell it to somebody else for something that he would consider to be valuable money. Because they already sold me on this idea because they had the auction episode previously. So I could see how he doesn't want to keep this. He just wants to sell it to another sucker so that he could get gold press latinum. Is there a specific term for the value of an object that comes in the potential to sell it for like, uh, to, to sell it for, you know, a decent price like that? Yeah, that's what the term speculative means. Excellent. I learned something new today. Thank you, Sam. I think that's why you hear that term a lot with startups, with penny stocks, and with crypto, because none of these companies are making any money And in the case of crypto, they're not companies at all. So there's no way for you to try to evaluate them. So it's all based on speculation of what you speculate that you could sell that to somebody else for. So what you're saying is that what Fallow should have offered is a bunch of sweet pictures of chimpanzees. (laughs) And then Quark could have absolutely (laughs) taken him up on those. So if somebody's listening to this 20 years in the future and have no idea what's going on, (laughs) think of this as a time capsule. Because right now, when... Angel and I are speaking in this era. Pictures of chimpanzees are worth like pictures of drawings of chimpanzees. I, I, I must say they're not even high definition pictures of chimpanzees. They're low resolution, cartoony drawings of chimpanzees are going for millions of dollars. This is the pandemic world that we're living in right now. Heed our warnings. Heed our warnings, men of the future who play this record. <laughs> Angel is not lying. We should like burn this podcast. Like we should press it onto like a gold record, like like is on like Voyager Two, the one that like plays for all the alien species. Don't buy into the NFT grift, alien races. <laughs> a note to our loyal listeners: If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Because the Wadi, who clearly are like, you know, the gamer species, uh, they get really into Dabo, and then they're, they're, they stay at Quarks for the next six hours. The problem is, though, as the problem with any, you know, establishment of gambling, is what to do if people actually keep winning these games because again i don't i don't know how i don't know how dabo works but apparently the wadi have figured it out they're all <laughs>
They're all Dustin Hoffman's character in Rain Man, which that would have been a fun way to play this character. And even like them kind of being like this Eurovision type of people, it feeds into that 80s like TV sitcom vibe of like you go to Vegas and you see a lot of Europeans there gambling. What the country? This Deep Space Nine, it has the games. It's like uh, those episodes back in the day of like every sitcom in the 80s where they had Yakov Smirnoff on it. The Wadi are all from the planet Mepos. <laughs> yes! We've talked before about how a lot of, uh, you know, a common trope is, uh, you know, to make uh, an alien race seem per- properly, you know, uh, e- exotic and alien is to, like, play in Orientalist as- aesthetic tropes to make them look more Asian or Middle Eastern. It is nice to see to see uh, aliens based on white people. <laughs> like, how how weird white people can be. Exotic white people. Yes, exactly. White people can be exotic too, but that just means they're super weird. So Pork tries at first to tactfully kick the Wadi out of the bar, but that when that doesn't work, he gets one of his workers to press a button under the table that rigs the game to make them finally lose. So uh, before we see what the effect of that, though, we then cut back to uh, uh, Cisco coming. He, Cisco, by the way, while the Wadi were playing, uh, for six hours. At at one point, he just finally gives up and says, okay, they don't want me to do anything actually diplomatic with them. And then he just leaves and tells Cork, like, when they want to stop playing games, uh, just call me. And he goes back to his quarters, uh, uh, presumably late at, again, Finker quotes night. Uh, and he sees that Jake is still up. And uh, apparently, uh, he was up working on some on a school project with Nog. And, uh, and Cisco's all like, Nog's older than you. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be, you sh-. again, just basically blaming all of like Jake's like disobedience and, and stuff on Nog. And I know, Sam, you accurately did point out that, you know, the bad influence friend is like a very common trope, you know, in American shows. And it's not at least not like a trope that's extensively racialized, but there's part of me that just can't get past like this feeling like there's a little bit of a playing the irony card of like the, in the future, black men can be racist against aliens. Mm. Yeah. I could see that where Nog, right. The Ferengi are very dark too. Right. So in a way there's like this darkening of, Nog, right? He is like the othered friend. He is like the racially outcasted friend who is, quote unquote, from the streets, who is the bad influence from the bad side of town. You know, it's playing into this idea that liberals were just starting to play with back then is this post racial world where then in the future, right, that a black man in the future could be racist to another species. Yeah, I could definitely see like where the writers could be going with that. So I wanted to just bring up that the word uh, Ferengi actually comes from uh, the uh, the Persian word Farang or Farangi or Faranji in uh, in Arabic, which was a word that uh, originally referred to Frankish peoples, but then in general referred to basically like foreigners. So, so uh, that take that what you will. But also, I wanted to note within a a relevant bit of other uh, trek. Um, another Trek moment that made me think about this. And that's uh, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. 
there's uh it, for anybody who hasn't seen that movie the basic plot of that is it's the wall comes the wall comes down in space that movie came out actually that movie came out only like two years or so previous previous to this show being on the air because i think that one came out in 91 um but it was you know the basically the end of the war the cold war between klingons and the federation and there's a scene where the crew of the enterprise invites a, a delegation of klingons onto on board for a uh um for a diplomatic dinner and right after they extend the invitation there's a shot of chekhov saying guess who's coming to dinner and they originally wanted that line to be read by by uhura but uh for those of you who don't know the original series, Uhura's the Black Bridge officer, but Nichelle Nichols refused to say it because she kind of understood how fucked up that was. So they gave the line to Chekhov. Uh, I, I, to me, it's just that immediately came to my mind about how, like, sometimes I think this is just white writers a little bit sort of abusing their, like, let's show how, like, post-racial we are by, like, uh, wanting to put, like, Black characters in this position of being racist and not realizing how fucked up that assumption is that like black people would automatically just start behaving like white people do now if put in the same position (laughs) yeah it's that fear of retribution well also you made me realize and i don't know if fans talk about this a lot but a lot of the uh alien racists that are supposed to be like the bad guy for that series tend to be very dark right klingons were dark and then the Ferengi were dark. And you mentioned how they were originally supposed to be like the bad guys for Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. And then and then and then the uh the the Borg and the Cardassians sort of took that place and they're 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 both pretty pale. I mean, that's pretty much the mind of a liberal, right? Either it's a dark other or the bad guy is a Nazi. Yeah, for sure. So then we get we cut back to Quarks after that tender scene, and then the Wadi actually discover Quark bra- uh rigging the table. And thank God they aren't Nausicans, because if you have seen uh, previously, if you had been watching Trek regularly, you would have seen uh, uh, the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Tapestry, where the Nausicans uh, are in a game of Dom Jot with uh, Picard. Uh, it's in a flashback from his Academy days. And when they find out that the humans are cheating, uh, they stab Picard through the heart. So luckily that does not happen uh, to Quark here. They do. Uh, they do seem to be very threatening, and Quark tries to bargain his way out of any kind of potential violent reprisal, uh, asking things like, hey, do you want a free uh, trip to the... This is, uh, this was, I, a while back, I mentioned that there's a line where Quark asks like some aliens, do you have sex on your world? And it was in this episode, so I'm glad I didn't spoil too far ahead. But, I, but again, I love that he, he, he goes from, do you want a free trip to the Holosuite? Do you have sex on your world? Like just that immediate direct, like people are fucking in the hollow suite. I just love that. But uh, finally, um, the Wadi uh, say that uh, Quark can win more of their gemstones if he plays a, a, a new game, an honest game. 
And in my head, I immediately just cut to the 90s commercial for the board game Crossfire. It was like, this is the game you play in the post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland. <laughs> it was like, they show the two kids like playing the game and everything behind them is like on fire. It's like, this game is supposed to be like Logan's Run or something. It's like how they determine who wins, you know, and gets to, you know, have access to the water trough or something. It's sometime in the future. The ultimate challenge. Crossfire. Crossfire. And the kid who loses the game and presumably gets thrown to his death, you know, and then the kid who wins is just in there going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that commercial was like too intense for a lot of kids. They're like, I don't know if I want to play this game. (laughs) Or yes, I do want to play with my life. There's the game. So it's like they're like, there's an honest game. uh, Like, let's play a new game. And they open this tiny box and this huge board game materializes out of thin air into this empty space. It just made me realize like how uh, how it made it just brought back all of these flashbacks of like commercials and TV shows from the early 90s. that were all about like video games, virtual reality, like Nick Arcade. That was all about like like at the end, you get to go into a video game and fight our boss characters. And also, I think this episode draws from like a popular genre back then of choose your own adventure books. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this game is called Chula, which I love because that is also Mexican slang for an attractive woman. Uh, although uh, they pronounced it Chula, but to me, this game is about uh, flirting with all of the uh, really uh, sexy, tattooed Mexican women who cut my hair at Floyd Floyd's 99, because uh, that's a game I play uh, twice a month. Um, I'm getting the horny disease too. I'm sorry. I need to go. I need to go report to the infirmary. Um, so apparently, so, uh, they first start, they start like setting up the game without really explaining everything. They're just like, uh, we'll start at the, uh, you know, t- Fallow is like, we'll start at the second shaft. And then Quark, uh, says, you know, shouldn't we start at the first? And then he goes, only children enter at the first shaft, basically saying, get good noob. And the way, the way Quark is shown to be absolutely both frightened and confused as they set up Chula, it just sends me back to every time anybody has ever tried to get me to play Settlers of Catan with them. Have you have you ever played that, Sam? You know, I feel like I spent a lot of time with somebody trying to set the game up, more than actually playing. And then after like hours to set up and you're just, I can't wait around anymore. I gotta, I gotta go. Yeah, like it, I, I almost think that like Settlers of Catan is some kind of Andy Kaufman type prank where it's like the real game is seeing how long everybody can wait for the setup to be finished. Like the, and you just see who lasts the longest. I don't know anybody who didn't own the game who has ever played the game. Everybody I know who <laughs> has ever played it were owners of the game. But anybody who's like us, who were guests over at somebody else who had the game, they never played. So that means only their family members were able to sit around waiting because they lived there. So speaking of people leaving parties, we cut to uh, the game is going and Cisco is peacefully sleeping in bed, and then. Cisco is very much not in bed. Uh, he's now in a, he's flashed to some strange room. 
Yeah, it's just like I feel like I remember like in like, you know, 1993 or something when I had like very basic like, you know, uh, text based adventures games like it would always just like for me, it would like the first few minutes would always just be like open door, door won't open, open other door, door won't open like that was that was the way they killed time in like the top top like, you know, quarter of most text based games. But after after he finally uh, figures out how to uh, which door opens, Fallow shows up in front of Cisco and tells him to move along home and then disappears. But uh, so Cisco, he after after being visited by the ghost of Fallow, uh, uh, hears some prissy whimpering. So he knows that that must be Bashir. So he uh, he finds Bashir and uh, Jadzia and Kira. So everybody's gathered. I will say up top, and I'll I'll cite some more examples uh, as we keep going. But I think the best thing about this episode, about Move Along Home, is just how all of the characters just react to everything in such a perfectly consistent manner that, like, if you wanted to show... And the fact that it's not, like, you know, arc, an arc story, like, dependent on any kind of over... Like, if you wanted to have a, a really good, like, and kid... Fr- like, if you wanted to show, like, you if you had, like, a like a 10 year old like nephew who you wanted to get interested in star Trek and you wanted to like uh, show him an episode that he didn't need to be like briefed on. And that would be fun. And also very much like, let him know who all the characters are. Like uh, it's this one because like, uh, as they're finally figuring out that they're trapped in some kind of like simulation, uh, Kira's, uh, you know, like, uh, Bashir's like, oh, maybe we're being placed in some kind of environmental test, you know, like like laboratory mice. And then Kira just goes, I'm sure all of you Starfleet explorers find this fascinating, but I'm a Bajoran administrator. This is not what I signed up for. Like, just she is too annoyed to be impressed by her fancy sci-fi predicament. And I love that about Kira so much. And then uh, Jadzia, again, this is a good kid-friendly episode because Jadzia suggests the scooby-doo strategy and says everybody uh, everybody should just split up and before they split up cisco just looks at looks at uh uh bashir just goes if all else fails doctor just yell again fucking (laughs) owned there's some the rest of this episode is filled with some really good fucking burns like everybody is like there's moments where a lot of characters are mean to each other but in such delightful ways (laughs) yeah If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com slash southpawpod so uh people start to realize that something's wrong when uh jake goes to odo uh in the morning and asks if uh if he knows where his dad is uh so according to the so odo asked the computer to locate where cisco is and he's not even showing up on the station so uh, there's a there's a scene where for some reason uh, Odo ends up uh, finding out about Jake be- paying more attention to girls and plays horny police and smells the scent of horny on Jake, but lets him off with a warning citation instead of sending him to horny jail. Uh, but uh, 
Odo goes to ops and then, oh, Officer Biscuits and Gravy is back. Uh, I, it wasn't until it wasn't until after I like later as I went through the episode that I finally remembered his real name. It's Primin. But like I was just like, oh, that guy. I have to say, though, this scene changes my opinion of Primin. I now love him. And the reason why is because like when when Odo shows up on ops, the first thing that Primin does, he goes, Constable Odo, like just trying to be funny in the way that the dude at the office who is obviously very unfunny but he who himself is convinced he's hilarious like tries to act like it just felt so real and relatable to me he switched up the accent for you (laughs) well yeah that and it's like it's just like maybe maybe like that whole weird accent was just part of that same affect like that's it he's just the dude who does bits at work even when you like you are so sick of them. And there wasn't much payoff. I think that was it. <laughs> That's the last you see of him. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he basically, <laughs> basically Odo's just like, the captain's gone. Help me figure it out. Uh, and, um, and then that's it. So back to the game. Back to the game. Uh, Fallow makes Quark roll the dice. Quark says he doesn't even know how the rules are. And then Fallow says, uh, you learn the rules as you play. So yes, like, <laughs> just like Catan. Uh, and, and, and he says, like, some will never understand. Uh, Fallow then goes, some will never understand it, while others will consider it mere child's play. Which is, like, good to know that on every planet, even, like, 400 years into the future, gamers are still the most insufferable people. <laughs> in my head, seeing Fallow, the way he talks about Chula to Quark, it makes me feel like the right, whoever wrote this episode went to some game shop to like try and play, you know, Magic the Gathering or something and encountered some absolutely obnoxious like comic book guy from the Simpsons type and was so annoyed by him that he was just like, I'm going to turn you into a Star Trek alien and make a whole episode making fun of you. The Quark rolls the dice and it means that all of his pieces, which we are coming to understand, represent all of our heroes that are trapped in the game. They get to meet the Chandra, uh, which leads up to my favorite scene in this episode and possibly all of season one, Deep Space Nine, which is Alamarain. Uh, there's just this little girl who the, the, our heroes walk into a, a, a new room where there's a little girl uh, playing uh, this hopscotch type game and uh, is like seeing this little rhyme that's something like Alamarain, count to four, Alamarain, count three more, Alamarain, if, if, if you can see Alamarain, you'll come with me. And so they figure out, uh, first first off, uh, Kira, who obviously has no time for this, tries to just simply walk across the room and realizes that there is a force field uh, that is uh, that should be in the way of the girl, uh, but is keeping them from passing. So then they finally realize, okay, they have to do the little hopscotch game while... Uh, at, at first, they try to do that, but then the 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 force field uh, is still uh, there. But then they have to actually do the little dance and sing the little rhyme at the same time, the way that the girl does it, in order to make it through. And again, this scene, it again, like I love this scene because it shows you everything about how each character is as a person. Like this is the way that each that way that Cisco, Jadzia, Bashir. And then and then Kira uh, all do this dance, like shows you that because Jadzia, of course, does it with like 
scientific, meticulous attention to detail, coordinating the foot and rhymes. Kira does it very annoyed and not having any time for it. But Cisco, Cisco not only does the dance, says the rhyme, but he sings it because God damn it, Benjamin Cisco commits. <laughs> like you can tell it's like if it like when Jake was a little kid, if like he if like Jake was like, you're going to be the monster. Now chase me like Cisco wouldn't just be the shitty parent who just rolls his <laughs> eyes. is like, OK, I'm going to come get you like he fucking gets in a stance and bears his fangs and goes Rawr! like Cisco's that kind of dad. And then, of course, Bashir gets painfully zapped when he follows a girl who didn't ask him to. So everything is just perfectly in track there. Uh, and then after after the uh, <laughs> after the uh, the heroes finally pass through the door, we cut back and Fallow just goes, a la Marine! which is just something I like to shout to myself whenever I do anything positive or I make any kind of achievement. So uh, they, you know, uh, the game pieces move along. Quark wins some more gems, but he seems to be uh, very unaware of uh, of uh, the fact that his uh, friends—I was going to say crewmates, but he's not in Starfleet. But whatever, his friends are the game pieces. Until so he's he's uh, before the next roll, he's asked by uh, Fallow to choose the path of the players of. You know, either a shorter route that is dangerous, uh, more dangerous, but with higher reward, or one that is safe and longer. And before he picks, uh, Odo shows up with a wonderful, wonderful, uh, uh, prototypical, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful quack, which is just like, uh, I feel like it's the platonic ideal of all the times, of all the times he lets out a nice, hearty quack. So Odo tells Quark that. Uh, the four, that four officers are missing: Cisco, uh, Bashir, uh, Kira, and Dax. And immediately, looking at the fact that there are four pieces on the game board, puts two and two together. So we go from Quark being able to immediately figure out, oh, the missing the there is some kind of relation between the missing characters and the four game pieces. But then we cut back to inside the game, and then Jadzia has this kind of eureka move uh, moment where he's like what if we're inside a game and it's like they literally just played a game to get through one of these rooms they had to play hopscotch and and they knew that the wadi number one they know that this happened after the wadi arrived on the station they knew that the wadi are very specifically about games like that is their thing and then now they're in this situation that should have been their first Con- that should have been their first like hypothesis. So I guess you know Qu- the Ferengi brain has all of these extra lobes. So like he, so Quark was just borrowing all of the communal brain power that existed on the station that day. So in the next challenge, uh, they get to a new room where it's uh, full of people uh, at a party who are drinking and then won't say anything helpful to any of them, even after Kira throws a tray of food on the floor to try and get their attention. Which, uh, this sounds like my entire undergraduate experience, so I relate to this scene pretty well. So, uh, we go back to Odo and Primen on the, uh, on the case, and Odo, uh, realizes that there is, uh, some kind of, uh, strange energy signature coming from the docked Wadi ship. And he tells Primen, beam me onto that ship. But so he goes onto the ship, 
uh, and then Odo sees like there's like a uh, 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 a room where there's some like light coming on to that uh, shining out of it. That must be where the energy is coming from. But then he walks into it. And now he's just back in quarks. It's like that scene when D- when Polnareff tries to attack Dio up the staircase, and he just kept sit- being sent right back to the beginning of the staircase. That's a JoJo reference for whoever gets it. Um, so now, because he because uh, the Wadi see that he uh, was poking around in their shit, he's like, "You get to be in the game too." Uh, Odo tries to like get them to just stop playing the game, and but he just gets told, uh, "Stop the game, lose your players." So Quark rules again, uh, and now it's an unfortunate role. Uh, and so, so what we back in the game, what happens is that they all get attacked by this swarm of light bees that then make uh, Bashir disbashir. That was a bad pun, but I wrote it down anyway. <laughs> you're gonna have to deal with it. Uh, Bashir's gone. What the hell happened? And now, now because so so now because everybody knows what's going on, the cuts back and forth are a lot quicker. And now Cork is very much aware of the stakes here. Uh, and uh, there's a moment here where uh, at the next turn, he's asked again, choose the path: the shorter, safer, uh, the shorter, more dangerous path, or the longer, safer path. But this time he's like, uh, "Okay, let's do the shorter path because." Uh, it, this could get them all the way home in just one move. Uh, and he asked, and he, and he asked Odo to uh, trust a gambler. Uh, but even though, like, we saw that Cork only wins when he rigs the table to make the other people lose, so not a huge vote of confidence. But uh, Odo goes along with it, and then to continue this lovable, this to continue this amazing just chain of consecutive humiliations in this episode quark like tells odo to blow on his dice <laughs> he's just like come on blow on and then odo blows on <laughs> like this episode just pulls no punches in terms of just like everybody sucks and we're gonna point out to you how they suck i don't know why i'm getting such schadenfreude out of just making goo cop blow on some dice uh <laughs> but now uh, the result of of this roll of the next roll of the dice, uh, Quark is then forced to uh, choose uh, one so that two may live. And the reaction to that actually is one of the moments where uh, we start. I, I I hope that other people start to see what's so like you know redeeming and and charming about Quark. Uh, I mean. I think we 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 already know why he's charming, but here, like this shows that like he's definitely supposed to be a sympathetic character because he refuses to choose. Like he doesn't want, you know, he's he's obviously, you know, like many businessmen, like many capitalists, he's fine with like lives that he doesn't have to uh, see be extinguished in the process of his business dealings. But now that he's directly, basically forced into the, into the trolley problem. Uh, you know, he refuses to pick it. He begs to not have to. So at least we understand that he has some sense of like a conscience and that, and that his personal, like he starts like sobbing and crying, begging in front of Wadi. So we know that his personal pride is less important to him than, you know, uh, avoidable deaths that, that don't yield any profit. So I, I, I like this scene. Obviously it's like a low bar, you know, for Quark to pass, but I I like seeing that moment with Quark. But then Fallow just goes, "Fine, we'll just have the the uh, the game pick a random player to sacrifice." It's a very Squid Game like episode. <laughs> That's true. 
that Deep Space Nine predicted COVID-19. Deep Space Nine predicted Squid Game. Deep Space Nine predicted all the shit you love now. and de- Well, not love, but all the shit that's around now. So they finally enter. So our heroes finally do make it to the final stage, but it's this like rocky cave where there's some light at the end of the cave. So it must be near the exit. And then Dax, uh, get there, there's like an earthquake and a leg and a rock falls on top of Dax's leg. And, uh, and then they have to do this whole like, oh no, we can't, we have to jump across this chasm and we can't all three make it over, especially because Dax has uh, an injury, but like, uh, we can't leave Dax behind. And they have this all like, uh, they, you know, they have the Star Trek moment of like, no, we're not going to sacrifice people and we're going to, everybody makes it home. But this just results in them all falling into the chasm, which is probably the most realistic moment in any Star Trek show. But then they all just materialize back at Quark's. They're safe. Quark still lost the game, but then it turns out that they were never in any actual danger. It, you know, Fallow's just like, it was just a game. And then everybody's just like, oh, you. And then he leaves. And that's the end of the episode, which, again, to bring it back to Q, it's kind of interesting here because, like, usually, like, because obviously, like, aliens playing games with, uh, Usually it's like the games are usually meant to be like, let's test humanity, you know, see, you know, what is the true quality of humanity. But I guess then it is kind of subversive that at the end, it's just like, nah, bro, we just like games. Like, like we're not, we're not even trying to like make any kind of statement about the, 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 the human condition. It's just like, we like gaming, man. That's the lesson to get from this episode. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what I liked about this episode. In general, DS9 is self-contained, but then this episode was also self-contained within the whole series where it could be just an episode, like a one-shot episode, and it would still make sense. And then as part of this, it still makes sense too. Yeah, it is kind of nice that it's just like sometimes, it's like saying like, sometimes weird shit just happens to you and it doesn't really have like some kind of cosmic message to it. It's just like, those are some fucked up aliens. Well, it's like an anthology episode, right? Like Twilight Zone. And then it made me miss Twilight Zone. Nice. Well, that wraps it up for Move Along Home. Of course, you know, it's a silly, fun little uh, romp that is much needed uh, as like a counter, you know, to as a counterweight to all the heavier sci-fi. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, with the 11th episode, which is going to be the Nagus. That's going to be another uh, fun uh, Ferengi-centric episode where we'll learn a little bit more about the culture of that species. Uh, any any other final thoughts to share about this episode before we uh, say goodbye to our listeners, Sam? Nah, that was it. All right, well, we'll move along home then. Uh, guys, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you like us, uh, please support us on Patreon. That's uh, www.patreon.com slash southpawpod. Uh, that's where you can uh, contribute $4 a month and get access to our uh, Discord community, which is a lovely little place. And uh, you support our other shows like Fight Study, Working Stiff Radio, Pride Never Die, and uh, upcoming projects. Uh, again, next week, Southpaw Deep Space Nine will be back with uh, discussing the Nagus. Uh, until then... Da-na-na-na! Da-na-na-na!